0: Hello, and welcome to TanakhStudy.com. I'm E.L. Ziegler, and today is our last class together. We have the privilege of learning together as our final class, the final song of the sea, which actually brings to an end the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. This song is a very familiar song. It, of course, has opens with this wonderful exclamation of jubilation, Ashira l'adonai ki ga'o ga'a. I will sing to God, for He is truly exalted. It has unforgettable praise of God, Ze Eli VeAnvehu Mi Chamocha BeElim Hashem. And this, of course, these expressions represent the end of the period of Am Yisrael's prolonged slavery. It represents the end of the period of uh, their their sojourn in Egypt and the beginning of their road to nationhood. The drama of this song enables us to get a glimpse into Am Yisrael's state of mind as they internalize these great miracles that they've experienced, beginning with the miracles of the plagues in Egypt and, of course, concluding here with the great miracle at the Yam Suf. We experience their awe. We experience their excitement. We experience their anticipation of a glorious future. And this song, of course, is not meant to be read independently. It's the culmination of a process. It concludes this long, elaborate narrative that we have been learning together, this narrative which is so rich in detail, which has as its ultimate goal, not necessarily just the release of the Jewish people, of the Israelites from slavery, but rather the bringing them closer to God, bringing them towards their future, towards this period in which they set a motion their nationhood. So this story is not just a story of um, of morality, of removing the people from their slavery, but it's also a story about theology. It's also a story about preparing Am Yisrael for their new and upcoming role. And we're going to be talking about that as we progress through this shirah. Now, what, once we have this shirah, we have a sense that we have this uh, celebration, this celebratory moment. The Midrash talks about ten songs of his in, in Am el's history, each of which marks a unique moment or a unique situation in Am el's history. This shira is particularly important. Uh, we have echoes of it all over Tanakh, perhaps especially in Sefer Yeshayahu and in Sefer Tehillim. It also has a special place in Tefillah. Of course, we say shira tayam every day in Tefillah. It was also sung in the Beit HaMikdash, while the Tamid, the Korban Tamid, was brought on Shabbat. And not only do we say it every morning as part of the Pesukei de Zimra, but we also uh, say a sort of an extract of Shirat Hayam as the leading to Shemona Esrei, uh, both in Shacharit and in Mariv. Uh, we, we say the middle pasuk, Micha Mocha uh, and we, of course, say the final pasuk as well. Uh, this song is such a central song, and such a well-known song that famously Beno Jacob called the song the National Anthem of Israel. And of course, the Shabbat, when we read Parshat B'Shalach, is called Shabbat Shira. It's the Shabbat of song. And that, of course, is the Shabbat when we Uh, We experience the song and we celebrate Yetziat Mitzrayim as we sing the song. The song is also written in a special manner in the Torah scroll itself. It's written Ariach Al Gabei Levena. It's written as a brick set on top of a blank spot. And that, I think, is there in order to indicate the stability of the song, its lasting, enduring nature, its lasting, enduring effect. Um, Now, this song has several poetic features, which I'd like to begin with. I'd like to open with some of the poetic features. The first point that I'd like to make is that uh, this song seems to be divided into two parts. The first part of the song, the first half of the song, is very clearly about the events that have just taken place, the splitting of the sea, the drowning of the Egyptian army, and more particularly, the victory of God over Paro. This lasts until... That middle uh, Pasuk of the song, in Pasuk aleph Mi chamocha elim Hashem, mi chamocha ne'edar Bakodesh, that seems to, uh, to to complete the first section. Uh, from this point forward, the subject of the song, it seems to be no longer the events of the sea. As the Ezra already notes there, the second part of the shira seems to point us toward the future, despite the fact that it's still framed in the past tense. Here we look forward toward the conquest of the land of Israel, installing the nation in its land, establishing the mikdash, the temple of God. This we're going to see as we progress through the, our through our uh, learning of this shira together. In the first part of the song, what we're going to see is when we describe the past, the focus is on God's might against the Egyptian enemies and the Israelite nation seems to be a bystander, they are watching the events unfold from the sidelines and we are reacting accordingly with awe and with reverence. What happens in the second half of the shirah is the nation of Israel becomes the center. In this part of the shirah we have the other nations whose reaction, who are on the sidelines and whose reaction is central. The world watches from the sidelines as the nation of Israel seems to assume its role at the center of history. And so what I want to suggest already at the outset is that Shiran Hayam is not primarily about the splitting of the sea, nor is it primarily about the exodus from Egypt. Shiran Hayam looks backward at our past, defined by our passivity, our position on the sidelines of history, but it also looks forward to a future in which we are uh, shaping our destiny in which what, uh, what, what Am al does is watched very carefully by the world at large, and in which case they move from the sidelines to a central role in the ancient world. Uh, one other structural or poetic point that I want to make from the very beginning is something that Rashi points out, which is that the shira is filled with parallels but it's also particularly filled with these sentences in which a phrase is repeated twice in a poetic manner. Think yimincha Hashem, yimincha Hashem, mi chamocha, mi kamocha, ad ya'vor, ad ya'vor, right? We also have Hashem um, ish uh, milchama. Hashem Shmo, the name of God, seems to be repeated twice. And what I want to begin to show you is that in each of these repeated lines, I think we have a very significant idea. In fact, Shirad Hayam seems to collect together the major themes of the story of Yitzchia Yitzrayim. They converge together in this song, and they recall these ideas Particularly in those repeated poetic lines, which are perhaps designed in order to call our attention to them. Okay, let's turn our attention now to this first pasuk in Perek Tepav. Moshe et hazot vayomru lemor Then Moshe and Bnei Yisrael sang this song to God. And they said, saying, I will sing to God, for he is greatly exalted. He has cast the horse and the chariot into the sea. So the first thing that we have to note here is that we have this sense that Moshe and Bnei together sing the shirah to God. This itself, I think, is a significant point because until now, Moshe seemed to be somewhat separate. I mean, he's still separate from Bnei Yisrael, but here Moshe, together with Bnei Yisrael, stands together with Bnei Yisrael in praise of God. Note how they merge together into the first person singular with the word Ashira, I will sing. They become one entity. I think this point is also significant because it's significant to note that this Shirah. Does not glorify Moshe. It doesn't glorify any human. It's God who splits the sea. Not Moshe. Moshe stands outside the shira along with Am Yisrael, along with the children of Israel, in order to praise God. What is he praising God for? Well, first of all, I think uh, this introduces the first subject of the story, which is that we are praising God in this in this shira for uh, defeating the mighty Egyptians. But in this opening line, we also have uh, one of the main themes of the shirah that we find throughout the shirah is this upward movement and this downward movement. God is gaoga, God is greatly exalted, right? He, is, uh, he raises up and the Egyptian army, rama vayam, is cast downward into the sea The terms that are are used to describe God, uh, Ram, Gadol, Aromamenhu, right? God is is rising up. And in contrast, what we find throughout the Shirah is that the fate of Paro, the fate of his army, are connected with terms that have a downward movement. Rama, Yara, Tubu, Yardu, Salilu. Tipo, right there's this constant i didn't even translate those words we'll see them as we progress but there's this constant sense that they are sinking down deeply what is of course the the point of this is that uh, god rises through this victory while the great paro and the great might of the human king sinks down into this um into this powerless state uh, what's especially interesting is that in the, when we progress later on, what we're going to see in Pasuk Zion is that, in fact, the Egyptian army, the enemies, are going to be called Kamecha, those who stand up against you. And what's perhaps especially interesting is that even though Am el begins in this song in the sea's depths, they wind up at the end of the song at the top of the mountain. And, of course, it's the mountain of God, Behar Nechalatcha right? But we have that in the um, in Pasuk Tet Zion. They end up on this mountain. They followed God upward. They end in this very high place, which again, I think mirrors sort of the ultimate goal of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, which is meant to pull humanity upward toward this place of Kedushah, toward this place of holiness and sanctity. So that's the movement of the shirah. And that's one of the reasons that in the shirah we have these upward and downward, uh, we have this upward and downward theme. Let's look at Pasuk Bet, as opposed to the might of the Egyptians, which was Sus virochvo, the horse and the chariot, ozi Vizimrat ya, my strength, my might is in God, v'hi and he was for me as a savior. Ze eliva anvehu. This is my God. There's something very real about the word zeh. This is my God, pointing the anvehu, and I will either build him a shrine, or the Rashbam says I will tell of his beauty. Perhaps it also means I will lift him up to a high place. avi Menhu. and this is the God of my father, and I will exalt him. So here we have the word zimrat. Uh, Rashi suggests and mo- most of the uh, Mefarshim seem to think here that even if it has an illusion of Singing it means my strength and it's uh, a parallel to the word ozi ozi vizimrat ya So God is my strength not the sus not the Rehev. We have this notion that God is uh, triumphs over human strength and the human conception of power and that of course is going to be the ending of this initial section which ends in pasukim, Adonai Adonai shmo. God is a man of war. God is His name, and this is a poetic retelling of what we saw previously in Parak Yudalid pasuk Yudalid, Adonai yilachem lachem v'atem God will fight on your behalf, and you will be silent. God will fight on your behalf. Therefore, God is this um, uh, warrior. And uh, and God is His name. So this is our first. This is our first paragraph. It ends with this doubled line, Hashem, Hashem. And the first point that this paragraph makes is that in fact all of um, uh, God's might can defeat all concepts of human might. The other point that it's making, I think, that this is a key component of the story of Yitzhak is Hashem Shmo. This is God's name. Let's not forget how important names have been in this story. Even though the name of the book is Shemot, uh, the the first chapter in Shemot tells us the story of the loss of names. When the sons of Yaakov come down to Egypt, they have names. But as we progress through the story of slavery, what we see is a mute and fading nation. They don't have names. They don't have identity. They don't have a sense of self. Their Egyptian counterparts as well become submerged in this sort of elaborate mechanism of Egyptian power, of Egyptian culture, where the paro stands at the top, and people are somewhat obliterated, and therefore uh, we have this this story of the loss of names. The interesting point is how they reacquire their names. Um, They reacquire their name by finding first and foremost God's name. Right when Moshe first encounters God, remember he says, "V'amruli mashbo ma ma When I, they will ask me what is his name, we have a sense that the reason, or one of the reasons, perhaps the primary reason that they've lost their own name and their own identity in Egypt is because they've forgotten God's name, and that's why at the beginning of Parshat Vaera, God informs the people four times. He tells Moshe to tell the people, "Ani Hashem, Ani Hashem, I am God." The miracles of the plagues, the miracles of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, perhaps especially the events of the sea, restore God's name. And of course, we recall also that in the plague of Barad, God said, I am doing this, so they will tell of my name. So the, the goal of this story is partially in order that People will know God's name, but it also ultimately results in Am Yisrael's ability to reclaim their own identity by reacquiring God's name. They also reacquire their own names. And this um, paragraph, with, which ends with the words Hashem Shmo, I think may allude to that very important theme in the Itziat Mitzrayim story. Rav Moshe Shama of the Sephardic Institute points out that the words, from Ashira LaShem la until Hashem Shmo, actually there are 26 words, 26, of course, being the uh, the gematria of the tetragrammaton of Shem Havaya, and that this, again, draws our attention to the importance of Shem Havaya, of Shem Hashem, of the name of God in this story. Okay, let's move on to our next paragraph. Markivot paro v'chelo Yaravayam. The chariots of Paro and his soldiers were cast into the sea, and the select of his officers drowned in the Sea of Reeds. What we have here is, again, a focus on the destruction of the enemy. Perhaps there's a certain amount of elaboration as we progress here in the Shirah. The depths covered him. The depths covered him. They went down into the deep waters, they sunk down deeply like a stone, right? So we have these again, these down-heavy, downward movements, the simile, like a stone. Your right hand God was glorious in its power, your right hand God shattered the enemy. So here again, we have another doubled line. Um, This doubled line, I think, once again, certainly focuses us entirely on the way in which God's mighty strength overcomes and triumphs over the, the implements of human strength, the markavot, the chariot, the susim. We're going to see this a lot later in the Tanakh. The Anachnu, the Anachnu, the name Hashem, Eloheinu, Nazkir. Those people can have their chariots and their horses, but we, we have the name of God. We recall the name of God as the source of our victory. This, of course, derives from this story, from the story of Tzav time, from the story of Shirat Hayam. But at the same time, this doubled line adds something new, which is that it focuses us on God's hand, Yemincha Hashem. First of all, also note as a as another point that we turn directly to God here in a, in second person, right? Yemincha. We are speaking to God, beginning in this sentence. But at the same time. What we have to note is that something that we've pointed out several times over the course of our learning of the story, and that is that the story features Moshe's hands. Also, the story of the Yamsuf, but also throughout the story of uh, the plagues, throughout the, the, the story of Itiyat Mitzrayim. But as we noted, never in the Tanakh is Moshe going to be given credit. For the splitting of the sea, it is God who splits the sea, and Moshe's hand represents god's hand, and so when we have here Yemin Hashem Neach, what we're proclaiming here is that everything that Moshe did was in order to represent God, and that it is god who uh, who who functions here as the centre of this story, God's hand has triumphed here. At the end of the story, we've seen many times the yad ha-chazaka, the strong hand of God. And, and we, we also spoke about that a little bit in contrast to Paro's might, which is also sometimes described as yad chazaka the strong arm of Paro, the strong hand of Paro. So here we have God's might uh, triumphing over uh, Paro's might. In our third paragraph and final paragraph that describes these events, We have a more extensive description, further elaboration. We also have not just the destruction of the enemies, but we also have the splitting of the sea. This section is much stronger than previous sections. It emphasizes God's more deliberate actions, his conscious involvement in the story, Taharos, Biroach Hapecha, Nashaf all of the descriptions of God's destruction, which we're going to see in a moment, are all second-person. There's a sense that as we progress through this shira, the actual description gains momentum. So let's look in Pasuk Kakash. And in the greatness of your exaltedness, you destroyed those who stood up against you, those enemies. You sent out your anger and it ate them like straw, it consumed them like straw. apecha ne mo neid kafu tehomot And with the breath of your nostrils, the water piled up, it stood up the liquid like a wall, the depths. Froze in the heart of the sea. One of the things that we see in this pasuk, first of all, this pasuk is about the splitting of the sea. It's not. It doesn't really feature the Egyptians. It actually features the sea itself. Interestingly, it doesn't seem to be featuring God splitting the sea for the purpose of Am Yisrael walking through. But perhaps, as we'll see in the next pasuk, uh, perhaps for the purpose of the Egyptians. Seeing the, uh, the 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 splitting of the sea and becoming exciting excited and thinking that now they can move forward in their pursuit of Amisrael in their attempt to return Am Yisrael to slavery. And well, one of the features that we see in this pasuk are the, the the one of the characteristic features of poetry in general and Shirat Hayam in particular, and that is that there are many synonyms. Right, so we have synonyms for water, we have the Mayim, we have the Noslim, we have the Yam. In other places we have Tehomot, we have Mitsulot, right? So all these synonyms for water, we have synonyms for how the water piles up, neermu, Kafu, right? So all these synonyms make this a very rich retelling of the story. There's a sense that everything that was done here was done in a comprehensive way. There may even be a gradual amplification of the story. First you have Mayim, then you have Nuzli, and then you have Teomot. Perhaps there's more and more water that is being described here. In any case, though, the sense of of piling on of this description of God's great miracles, we have here through the medium, through the technique of repetition. And now in Pasuk Tet, we actually pause to hear the words of the enemy. What does the enemy say when it actually sees the water split? Amar Oyev, the enemy said, Erdof asig achaleik shalau, tim nafshi, Arik harbi Torishemo Yadi. So the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoils, my soul will be filled. In other words, Nafshi, my desire will be filled, I will unsheath my sword, my hand will inherit. Right? Rashi uh, Ibn Ezra here says my hand will destroy. Rashi here says, My hand will make them poor right? Well, like from Lashon Morish, it seems to also have this sense of Torishemu of Yerusha. I will reacquire them. I will re-inherit them. That's what Professor Kasuto says. In any case, the water here is sort of left suspended in midair, and we hear the Egyptians plotting their victory. We have this alliteration of the, the the letter Aleph, right, Arik, uh, no, sorry, uh, Erdof, Asig, Achalet, Achalek, right, all this um, uh, uh, almost ironic, I will, I will, I will, self-centeredness, the eagerness here, there's no pause to their words, I will chase, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoils, they're already at the end, they've already reacquired these enslaved, these previously enslaved people, and of course, uh, this is going to contrast with the next pasuk, where they're obviously not going to accomplish all of the things that their eagerness and confidence suggests that they are going to accomplish. But their first-person description also clashes with the three first-person verbs that we have at the beginning of the shirah, in which Am El say, A-shira I will sing, I will enshrine, I will uplift, right? Am el uh, when they speak in first person in this Shirah, they are glorifying God. The enemy, when the enemy speaks in this in this Shirah, they are glorifying themselves. And what we have in the next pasuk is the completion of the description of this story in the Shirah. Nashafta kisamo yam. You blew with your uh, with your breath. And the sea covered them. They 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 sunk like lead in the mighty waters. Okay, so what we have here again in a sort of an, an extraordinary literary uh, technique surrounding the words of the Mitzrim, we have the words Yam, Ma'im, and Ruach, both in Pasukhet. And in pasuk Yud, we have the mayim, we have the water, we have the yam, but perhaps most importantly, we have God's breath, which is, of course, the ruach, which recalls the ruach kadim, the easterly wind that God sent in order to split the sea. So the Egyptian words disappear in a puff of God's wind, which overwhelms them with water. This is the climax of the description of the drowning of the Egyptians, their final gloating, triumphant sounds, are drowned out by the wind and the waters that now cover them in Pasuk Yud, and this really leads us to the end of this paragraph, which is also the the conclusion of this first part of the shirah, the part of the shirah that describes what happens at the sea. We conclude in Pasuk Yud Aleph with a, a pasuk which is so significant that it echoes Throughout the Tanakh, we find it many, many times in some sort of uh, variation in Sefer Tehilim. And of course, we noted before, it precedes to HaAmidah, the Shwana Esrei that we say. We, we, we say this pasuk twice a day in Shacharis and in Marev, in uh, Pasuk Yud Aleph, Mi Kamocha Ba'elim Adonai, Mi Kamocha Nedar Ba'kodesh, Nora Tehilot, who is like you among the mighty ones, God. Who is like you, who is majestic in his holiness. Too wondrous for praise. He who does wonders. So here we have this description of God's supremacy. Mi chamocha be'elim Hashem. Who is like you. I translated like Rashi. Among the mighty. The Ibn Ezra translates among the celestial beings. Actually, Kisuto, Professor Kasuto suggests among the Egyptian deities. And this really, I think, is the point of this sort of uh, doubled line here, this um, parallel lines, which seems to complete not just the particular paragraph, but the entire section. We've noted several times that the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim is not just a story in which God battles the Egyptians, but it's a story in which God battles the pantheon of Egyptian gods, and in which he battles Elohei Mitzrayim, but also idolatry in general. The story of the Makot, we saw this in great detail, tells the tale of God's absolute power in which God's might triumphs over that of even the most powerful deities in Egypt. In fact, we saw that the plague narrative strikes at the source of their power, at the source of their notion of uh, deified power, whether it's the god of the Nile or the sun god Ra or the divine power of the Paro himself. The crushing of these deified powers is certainly a central aim of the story, and that's indicated by several explicit psukim in which God declares, Uvelo mitzrayim fatim, and against the gods of Egypt, I will do ju- judgments, I will I will uh, execute my judgments. So that this proclamation at the conclusion of this first section of the Shirah, which celebrates the triumph of God over Egypt in the story, also represents the final devastation of the theology of Egypt, of the uh, polytheistic culture of Egypt, in which Egypt placed great faith in its own deities and in its own power and in the might of human power, including, of course, turning the paro into a deity. Okay, we're now going to turn our attention to the second part of this shira. Here we turn now to Pasuk Yudet, Natita Yimincha, you stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. Um, so here there's a bit of a question as to what we're describing. Many of the Mepharshim think here that the Aretz refers to the depths of the sea, and this is in fact the continuation of the description of the, the splitting of the sea. One transition that has certainly occurred here is that we've moved from a description of the sea to a description of the land, and we are certainly transitioning from the miracle that just took place in the sea uh, to the miracle that we're looking forward to in entering the land. As we're going to see, we're now going to progress forward towards the land of Israel, certainly starting in Pasuk Yud-Gimel. Let's look in Pasuk Yud-Gimel, Nachita Amzuga alta nehalta el You guided in your kindness this nation that you redeemed. You led in your strength. You led in your strength toward the pasture of your holiness. So what we have here in this pasuk is that God is beginning to lead the people to nevei to the pasture of His Holiness. We just uh, encountered God's Holiness at the end of the first section We described God as being holy and now He's taking this nation and He's leading the nation to the place of His Holiness. The word am and kodesh are going to reappear at the conclusion of this section. At the conclusion of the second half of the Shira, which indicates that the Shira is really about, or certainly so the second part of the Shira, is about turning this um, turning this nation into a nation that is moving towards God's holiness, that is trying to follow God, that is trying to sanctify their God, their life through their connection to God. What is this Nivea Kojecha? that God takes Am Yisrael 2, beginning in pasukim Yedimel? Well, there are several different possibilities. The Rashbam says it's Eretz Yisrael, which I think is indicated by the next few psukim. The Ibn Ezra suggests that it's Harsinai, which is the next step in the process of moving from an enslaved nation to an ennobled nation, The Ramban suggests that this is about the ultimate goal, which is about building the temple, which is about taking Am Yisrael to the Beit HaMikdash. In any case, though, I think that the important point that we have to make is that in this section we're already moving towards an entirely different goal. We're We're no longer looking backward at the destruction of Egypt, but rather we're looking forward at the sanctification of Am Yisrael, of Am Zuga Alta, of this nation that you redeemed, you didn't redeem them in order to free them from all responsibilities, rather you redeem them in order so that they should pursue a life of holiness, a life of sanctification. And now we turn to look at the reaction of the bystanders. So beginning in Pasuk Yudalid, we have the stunned reaction of the bystanders as they watch God lead these people to holiness, um, I will make one more point, though, about pasuk Gimel until we, before we look at the reaction of the other nations. And that is, if in the previous section we saw God's destruction, here we begin to see God's kindness. Look at the alliterative of, uh, verbs that are being described here. Natita, nachita, nehalta, right? You stretched out, you guided, you led. Here we have the chesed of God, right? Chasticha. We have now God who is no longer uh, manifesting himself in a destructive sense as he did in the first section, but rather in a merciful and uh, kind nature as he helps his people to progress towards their goal. Now let's look in Psukim Yudalid through Zion where we see the reaction of the other nations. The nations here and they are very upset. Chil Achaz Yoshvei Plashet. A trembling seized those who live in Pelashet, as Nivhalu Alufei Edom. Then the, the thousands or the clans of Edom were panicked. Moav MoRad, the strong ones of Moav. A shaking seized them. Namogu Kol all of the residents of Knan melted. So just look at the uh, named nations that are responding to what has just happened. It is in general the Amim, but then we describe specifically the residents of Palachet, which is where the Plishtin live on the western coast, on the southwestern coast of the land of Canaan. We have Edom, we have Moav, we have Canaan. The nations that are responding here are the ones who are watching Am Yisrael in this next stage of history, in which they begin to move towards the Neve kochecha towards God's holy abode. Look at what happens in Pasuk. T'zayin <todic> tipol alehem eimata Vafachad bigdol z'racha yidmu ka'aven, ad yavor amechadunai, amzu kanita. Uh, a fear and a and a dread will fall upon them from the greatness of your arm they are silenced like stone until your nation god passes until this nation that you have purchased shall pass so here we have our fourth double line avor amcha hashem adya avor amzu kanita what is it that is uh, silencing all of these nations. It's the passing over of Am Yisrael. And of course, this word, Ya'avor, La'avor, is a key word in the entrance of Am Yisrael into the land in Yehoshua in chapters three and four, especially where it describes Am Yisrael's passage into this new land, into this new period. It takes us into this next stage of Am Yisrael's history. So this next doubled line recalls for us a very, another important theme of the story. Recall that the stated objective is not simply to extricate the people from Egypt, but the ultimate goal of nationhood, as is already stated to Moshe at the burning bush, is that God is taking Israel out of Egypt in order to bring them to a land of milk and honey, in order to bring them to a place where they can establish a homeland which facilitates their creativity, which empowers them to have a significant and independent role in the international arena in which Am Yisrael can in, can, can influence the nations around and disseminate the lofty and religious ideals of the, the Jewish nation and can show all of the nations around as they are watching in Shirat Hayam the greatness of God. So that's our fourth doubled line. Let's now look at the end of Shiratayam, the final few psukim of this magnificent Shirah. emo machom pa'alta Adonai Adonai konenu You will bring them and you will plant them in the mountain of your inheritance in the place that you uh, to dwell in that you made God in the holy place of God that your hands established." Right? So here we have God actively involved in bringing the people. It reminds us a little bit of God's active involvement in the final section, in the final paragraph of the first section where we saw God was very actively destroying the Egyptians. Here he is actively bringing Am Yisrael to, or, or bringing this nation to the mountain of his holiness to the place that he made in order for his own dwelling place, to his own sanctuary, to his own mikdash, his own holy place. The Ibn Ezra here says, har nachalatcha, the mountain of your holiness, that's har that's the Beit HaMikdash. This certainly seems to be um, the Mikdash Hashem, which is referred to later in the pasuk, and probably also the machom l'shifticha, so that we have these three synonyms for the Beit HaMikdash, which appears at the end of Shirat Hayam, showing us that the ultimate goal of Shirat Hayam is not just to take Am Yisrael to Eretz Yisrael, but rather to take them to the Beit HaMikdash, to the place of God's holiness, thereby turning them into an Am, into a nation of Kodesh, of Mikdash, a nation that dwells, uh, along with God or in service to God, which sanctifies their existence. Note here that the one who establishes the mikdash is God, and particularly God's hand. This is, I think, a very important point since we've seen uh, the word yad so many times throughout the course of this story. And so we end the shira with God's hand. But that's not actually the conclusion of the Shirah. The conclusion of the shira is in pasuk yud God shall reign forever and ever. I will mention one more thing before I explain that final pasuk. I'm just going to read Pasuk yud Pasuk Yud-Tet, actually, uh, there's debate surrounding Pasuk Yud-Tet. The Ibn Ezra suggests that this is part of the Shirah. It does seem to be written as part of the Shirah. The Ramban says it is not part of the Shirah. In fact, it's just telling us that Am Yisrael is singing the Shirah as they're walking through the sea. Let's read Pasuk Yutet: Ki sus paro b'rechbo uvefarashav bayam. For the horse of Paro and his chariot and his horsemen came into the sea. Vayashav Adonai Et hayam. And God. Threw over them or returned over them the waters of the sea, and Am Yisrael walked on dry land in the sea. And so the Ramban suggests that the song is actually sung as they're walking through the sea. I'm going to adopt that that the Ramban's position uh, for the for the purpose of seeing the words Hashem va'ed, as the culmination as the triumphant end of the shirah. Interestingly, this triumphant conclusion is not doubled. Although, of course, when we do say this shirah in the morning during our tefillah, we do double this line, which I think really reflects our sense that this line should be doubled, or certainly in keeping what we've said throughout our understanding of this shirah, that all the doubled lines contain these the most important ideas of uh, not just the shirah, but of the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Perhaps, though, this line is so stark and it's so powerful that it doesn't need doubling. In fact, of course, this is the ultimate message of the story. Recall, of course, that the story of Yitzhak, Yitzhak begins with the king of Egypt. The very first sentence of the narrative of Amisrael's slavery Opens with Melech Hadash al Lo yada et Yosef. A new king came up over Egypt. A king in Egypt. The story revolves around this king. This king who we know exists at the pinnacle of society. This deified man who is responsible for the success of Egypt, who is responsible for matters of life and death. This deified king who gives himself credit with having created the Nile and spawned the economic success that it provides to the people, the king who audaciously challenges God and keeps saying over and over that he will not send out Israel from Yitzrayim, despite the fact that God commands him to do so. And so this king, with all of his human might, with all of his simulated glory, with his chariots and his army and his Nile and his deities, has now been cast into the depths of the sea. The human king has been shown to be powerless relative to the divine king, and the triumphant words, God shall reign forever and ever, resonate at the end of this song, casting a new light upon the world. Indeed, for the first time in the Tanakh, as a result of the narrative of Yitzhiat Yitzrayim, God becomes known as the absolute king, the divine king who reigns forever and ever, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and who shows the world that he triumphs over all human uh, notions of kingship and power. And so it makes sense that the end of the Yitzhak Yitzrayim, which began by focusing on the power of the human king, ends with the power of the divine king. I'll take this opportunity to thank Jesse Salem and tanachstudy.com and all of you listeners for giving me the privilege of engaging and being part of this very important project. I wish you all many, many uh, more enjoyable hours of learning Torah. Ch'elchem Raita and birchat Hashem aleichem.